And so these three men are there to represent, they're basically angelic beings, and one of them stays with Abraham, and then these two angelic beings are going into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They say that they're, the, they're evil places, and they're going to go check it out and, and bring judgment on these places where uh, Abraham's nephew named Lot lives. And uh, there's this really interesting scene that we're going to cut over, but it's interesting. God says he's going to judge this city. And then Abraham uh, says, well, hang on. What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you spare the city? Will you, will you spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous? And God says, okay. And then he's like, well, okay, what about 45? Would you spare it for 45 people? And he's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's good. And then he's like, well, I mean, if you're going to do 45, why not 30? And so Abraham is just like the price line negotiator with God. Like he's sitting here, oh, he talks him down. He talks him down to 30, then he talks him down to 20, then he talks him down to 10. And then Abraham's like, good, 10. Like if there's 10 righteous people in this city, your angels are going to go investigate. And if you can find 10 good men, um, you will not judge the city. Um, And they don't find them. So we're going to pick up in chapter 19 uh, after all that has happened, uh, starting at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, All the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. If you are familiar with the Old Testament biblical text, the word know is a euphemism for having sex. So they're saying, bring them out so we can uh, have sex with them. And um, verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have um, two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn here, and he has become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men, that is the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Let me pray. I need, I need to pray. Um, God, we pray that you would uh, be with us and speak to us tonight. This is a very difficult passage in so many levels. And so we pray that you uh, would somehow make it clear uh, to us. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, so the story that we just read and the content therein and, and what's going to unfold, uh, we're going to keep reading the rest of the story uh, is for many of you, maybe the number one reason that you don't want to believe Christianity to be true. Um, it, it's either a nagging doubt that you have, like maybe you're a believer, but you're like, man, how does this all work? Like this whole idea of God's judgment. This is the passage, by the way, where we get the phrase fire and brimstone. Brimstone is just an old timey word for sulfur. 
We're going to see sulfur and fire raining down on the cities. A little spoiler alert of what, what's about to happen. Uh, and it, it's just very uncomfortable. You read it and you feel, at best, awkward. Um, maybe even ashamed. And uh, it's probably what's uh, a phrase that's commonly used is a defeater. A defeater belief is a thing that because I believe this other thing, it means that I cannot believe something else to be true. So you may, like it's popular in our culture to be like, you know, God's not judging. God would never judge people. I couldn't believe in a God who judges people. Therefore, I cannot believe the Bible. I can't believe like what it says. It's, it's a defeater belief for me, uh, whether for you or certainly many of your friends. Um, and I think that's very understandable. Like I feel that. I feel that with you. Um, as a Christian pastor, I, I, I struggle with that myself. And I don't think I'm going to solve that problem for you in 25 minutes. Uh, I'd love to get coffee and follow up and talk more. But, but what I want to do is take a look at what this passage is saying about God's judgment. So if you're going to reject Christianity, understand what it is saying and reject it on its own terms. That's all I'm asking you to do tonight, is to understand what it's saying and, and sort of the, the reasonableness of it. Um, and let's get coffee and talk more. So first, like, what, what does this text tell us actually about God's judgment? And the first thing it tells us is that it is deserved. The Bible is claiming that God's judgment is something that people deserve. So if I say, um, I, I, can't, I just can't believe in a God who would judge people, part of what I'm implying is, well, we don't deserve that. Like, people don't deserve to be judged. His judgment is wrong, which is ironically a judgment in itself that we're making. Um, but we're saying his judgment is wrong. Uh, but is it? So here, in this passage is, is demonstrating uh, in a bunch of different layers the reality of human evil. And I've got to address uh, another elephant in the room on this real quick. So, you know, the word Sodom is where we get the word sodomy. And um, oftentimes, you know, like Westboro Baptist, where they go and they protest outside people's funerals, and it's like, God hates gay people and et cetera, et cetera. Are you familiar with this? They're the people, the Christians who go around protesting. Um, and very frequently they'll have these verses, you know, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of, because of this. Um, it's actually way more complicated than that. In fact, if this was the only passage, the Bible does talk about it elsewhere. I'm not going to do a whole sermon on that. That would take two hours. That's a cup of coffee conversation. But um, it if this was the only verse we had, uh, th- that would not nearly be enough. What's going on here, what these men are attempting to do, it's not just uh, that they find Lot attractive and want to sleep with him. It's, it's a forced gang uh, situation going on here. Um, and uh, it's this very violent and evil thing. But here's what else is interesting, especially when you think about the people holding up the signs and calling people uh, sodomists. Um, the book of Ezekiel points back to this passage and talks about it. And I think we've got a slide. Do we? Yeah. So hold that slide. So it says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So God is speaking to his people, and he refers to them as being sisters with Sodom. And there's this whole passage in Ezekiel where God is comparing his own people to evil pagan nations and saying, you're worse, which is amazing. He says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters. And then, what do you think is going to be next? The people holding the picket signs are pretty sure that the sin that they had was sodomy, what we call sodomy. Um, But here's what it is. Next slide. You and your daughters, uh, she and her daughters had pride, had pride, 
excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. And, here we get to it, and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Isn't that funny? That perhaps the person holding the sign, according to Ezekiel, is more guilty of sodomy than the people that they're pointing their fingers at. It's an interesting point. Um, But there's like this whole multi-layered evil that has been taking place in this city, and apparently for some time. I'll talk about that in a minute. And remember, they're only there, you know, the the Marines are looking for a few good men, and these angels are just looking for 10 in an entire city, uh, and they can't even find that. And then uh, in, in 2 Peter, Peter refers to Lot as, quote, righteous Lot, like he's the one righteous person. He doesn't look so great in the story. Did you catch that? Like, don't do this horrible thing to these two perfect strangers I met 10 minutes ago because they're in my house and under my protection. I have two daughters. Take them instead. Like, it's insane. And so just so you're, you're clear on this, that was wrong and bad, and the Bible wants you to think that. <laughs> uh, sometimes we want the, the narrator to be like, and that was a sin and evil. And just, the, the Bible just usually demonstrates things to us. Sometimes in the stories, the narrator will chime in and point something out. But a lot of times it's just presenting the facts. Like, here's what went down. The best man in the city is horrible. And in uh, the next chapter, uh, Lot is going to get blackout drunk and then sleep with and impregnate his daughter. Does that bother you? Is that like a little bit weird? Does this whole story... Um, make you mad? Like, imagine this actually happening because these, these sorts of things do happen. Like, when you read this story, does it make you angry? It should. We should be upset. We should be uh, full of some anger over what is going on here. And according to God, it made him angry too. It made him upset. Um, I remember several years back, my. My son Benjamin is 10. He'll turn 11 in a few weeks. And uh, when he was a baby, I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I was holding Benjamin in my arms. And there was this crazy man with really sharp scissors who was, like, wielding them around. And I was like, hey, like, you're going to hurt my son. Like, chill out. i got a baby here. And then this gives the crazy guy this idea that he's going to attack my baby with his sharp scissors. And then in my dream... I'm editing the language. I said, if you touch my son, I will break you in two. And then I woke up. And I was like, yeah. I told, that, I told crazy scissor guys what I would do to him if he hurt my little Benjamin. Um, so here's the thing. How did you feel about me when I said that? You probably weren't like, oh, what a horrible judging man Ben is. In fact, you would think if he doesn't react that way, he's not a very good father. He's not a very good dad. Um, that is how I should react. And I do get the objection uh, of a judging God. But if there is real evil in the world, if there is real harm being done, um, and I would argue with you, maybe you don't think that you believe in evil, but I, I think that you probably actually do. Would you really prefer a God who does nothing about it? I'd be a pretty horrible father if I didn't protect my son, uh, if there was no justice, no retribution, no consequences for evil. Um, and so here, here's another 
huge misunderstanding we can make about a judgmental God, a God who judges. So we, we tend to draw the conclusion that, you know, if Christians worship a God who judges, then they, of course, are going to be judgmental too, right? Like, because our God, we want to be like our God, and our God uh, brings judgment and vengeance, then we are going to be vengeful people. But the judgment of God in the Bible is actually a motivation for restraining our evil as believers. Uh, Romans 12 uh, says this. I think we have it on the slide too. Is it there? Yeah, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance, this is God speaking, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. So my motive for not taking revenge on someone else is because it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. So it's actually a motive for peace, um, this concept. And even, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible used to be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would uh, not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. Now, the man on the street interviews, the most well-known uh, verse in the Bible is, judge not, which isn't even the whole verse, <laughs> but we think it's judge not. But even the rationale in Jesus' words for why I should not judge other people, it says, judge not, lest you be judged yourself. And who's doing the judging? He is. God is. Um, that, that is how it works. I've got a little quote. It's kind of long, but I want to uh, read it to you. I think it's... Um, it's written by a man named Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian, and uh, he is uh, Croatian. And uh, so if you're familiar, ask an R, uh, IR major if you're not, the sort of the genocide and whatnot that took place in the Balkans, and there was these like international lawsuits back and forth about all this stuff that had happened. And Miroslav Volf was there and was a witness to it and part of being a part of the recovery and healing process of people who had just been wiped out. But he says this about this very subject in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence by us requires a belief in divine vengeance, God's vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, you should not retaliate. Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the Western mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that at some level, we need to know that when there's so much injustice and cruelty and wrong and evil in the world, in order for us to not take up our fists and our swords 
and cut some throats and knock out some teeth. I have to just know that God is going to settle the score on his terms and not mine. It's deserved, according to the Bible. The second thing, it's delayed. I texted you this morning that's brought to you by the letter D, which always delivers a sermon. All of my, uh, all of my main points start with the letter D. Um, I dedicate the sermon to swampy memes. Um, God's judgment is delayed. It's delayed. Uh, here's what I mean. that The opportunity to repent is there. The God waits. And you see this in this passage, but also... Uh, throughout the Bible, there's this idea, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah shows up to his, the city of Nineveh, and he said, in three days, God is going to wipe you out. And then he doesn't say anything else. He just says, in three days, you're toast. But then the people repent, and God forgives them. Uh, it, it changes. Um, that's how prophecy works. In chapter 18, Abraham's been praying for them. He's negotiated with God to get it down to 10 people. Um, verse 13, if you notice, they said, uh, For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become very great before the Lord. It's this idea that this isn't like a new instantaneous thing, that for over the long course of time, uh, evil has grown and grown among these people. And then the angels, you know, warn Lot. Verse 14. So Lot went out and he said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And uh, a Jewish commentator, Robert Alter, says that the, the language of seem to be jesting actually means that they, were, they sort of were mocking him uh, for what he was saying or making fun of him. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you also be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and the two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought them him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you too be swept away. There's this idea that God has had a right to judge this whole time, but he has been holding back. That Abraham has bought them some time. That Lot is able to go and warn his sons and warn other people. And that even Lot himself is delaying. He's holding back. Uh, the New Testament says as much. Now, this is from Second Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. There's this idea that God is waiting patiently for us to turn back to him. Um, The application, what do we do with that? Repent. Like, turn back to God. He is patient and merciful and ready to forgive. Um, But one of the things that this idea of God having his judgment, which he claims is deserved, and the fact that he is in his patience willing to delay it, is... Um, that we have to take him seriously and listen to him on his terms and not define him according to ours. One of my favorite professors in seminary uh, is a German man named Hans Bayer, like the sweetest, gentlest man. We called him the smiling assassin. Uh, he taught me uh, Greek, and uh, it was funny because like, I was learning Greek from a German in English, and so it was this really interesting thing. 
and he would uh, jumble up uh, English idioms all the time. Like he would say, uh, if you got an answer right, he'd say, uh, "You hit the bull nose on the head." Like it's like three, it's like three idioms all wrong, like at once. Uh, and he would have these little uh, phrases. But when it, these ideas of God's justice and His judgment would come up, he, um, I'll never forget it. He said, "Don't play Mickey Mouse with God." I'm not totally sure what that means, but I also know what it means, right? We're not playing Mickey Mouse with God. He is, he is holy and other. Um, but here's what's so interesting. So they have the opportunity to repent, um, and it's there, and there's evidence that they should. And it's like, well, why don't they? Like if they just had a little more information, maybe? I don't know. Um, why don't they? So here's the, the next point justice is deserved and it is delayed. But here's, this is, this was the, the weirdest thing. And it's something the Bible says about justice all through the Bible, that it's desired, that we want it. Um, not just that we want it on someone else, but that the people receiving it themselves desire it. Um, and here, here's where it is in the passage. Did you notice when these men are struck blind, they don't stop? Like, wouldn't you think, like, hey, I'm blind. Hey, so am I. Maybe we should reflect for a moment on our actions and our life. Like, maybe we should, you know, be a little circumspect right now. What is this? What is going on? Um, But it's not just them. Did you notice in verse 16? They tell Lot to get out. But it says, but he lingered. But he lingered. But he waited. His sons laugh at him. And then his wife, very famously, verse 23 and 24, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. The angels had said, don't look back. And the, most of the commentators agree it's a pretty general interpretation of her looking back. It's not just that she was like, fireworks, this is cool. Like, let me look at that. It's a looking back of longing. It's a wanting to be back there in the city. Um, that it was what she wanted. Uh, the book of Romans, the opening chapter, Paul, Paul writes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So he's saying God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, willfully not believing the God that they can see and know uh, intuitively. And then he says this, and part of God's revealing his wrath to us is this, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So he's saying part of God's wrath is giving you your desires without him. It's God's wrath, part of his judgment, part of his punishment on sin is letting us have our own way. Letting us have what we want. Um, Tim Keller, whom some of you are familiar with in his book, The Reason for God, picks up on this idea. And I love what he says. He says, hell, hell is the trajectory of your soul going on for eternity. The trajectory of the soul going on for eternity. Um, the, the true nature of evil is the hardness of our own hearts and our wayward desires where when we are given what we want, what we want is selfishness and misery and separation from God. 
which is hell. Um, there's a, a great uh, allegory that sort of describes this uh, really beautifully. Um, it's called the Allegory of the Long Spoons. And there's different artwork uh, that has represented it. And sometimes it's not long spoons. It's people with, like, long pipe cleaner arms. And it's a painting of heaven and a painting of hell. Uh, and in the painting of hell, there's a, a group of people sitting around this table. And there's all this delicious food all over the table. But because they have these ridiculously long arms with the elbows that bend way out here, they're all picking up the food and they can't put it in their face. And they're gaunt and angry and miserable. And you can just see the anger and spite in their faces as they're punching each other and pushing for the food and unable to get the food in their own mouths. The painting of heaven is the same painting. Same table, same characters, same ridiculous arms but everyone's smiling and joyful. Instead of being gaunt, they're plump, they're full. You know, the, the classic kind of uh, Renaissance time where like, like just being like a chubby dude is like the best, right? Um, I want to go back to that. Um, but the reason that they're all happy is because they're reaching across the table and feeding each other. Um, and I love what that captures. Hell is the trajectory of the soul going on into eternity. Well, so how does Lot finally get out? How does he escape? In verse 16, they actually grab him by the collar. Like the, the angels physically grab him, even though he's lingering, and drag him out and pull him out. Why? Why did they do that for him? He's a horrible person. Why did they spare him and not everyone else? Because he was so righteous? So last point, God's judgment is deserved, it's delayed, it's even desired, but also uh, it's designated. It's designated, and here's what I mean by designated. Um, it, baseball season just started. Opening day was last week. It's a good, good, good time. I'm a Cardinals fan. Um, it's, a, it's a good time of year. Uh, and in the American League, it's American League, right, where they have the designated hitter. Like, our pitchers can't hit the baseball, so we're going to have a designated hitter who bats in their place. Um, and God's judgment is designated. And verse, verse 29 kind of ends the story, and it says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of their midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which God had lived, in which Lot had lived. Um, why was Lot spared? It says, God remembered Abraham. Not God remembered Lot. That Lot is spared because of Abraham. Like, how is that fair? Well, the way that it works is that ultimately it falls on Jesus. Jesus is our designated hitter when it comes to God's wrath. If you remember, it was Abraham was negotiating. You get 50, 45, 30, 20, 10, stops at 10. Why did he stop at 10? Why, didn't he, why not just get it down to one? Because he knew that just one righteous person wouldn't be righteous enough to save the whole city. But that one righteous one would come later, would come in the future uh, through Jesus. Romans 3, which we have up here, says this. But now the righteousness of God, remember what we were looking for in the city, a righteous person. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's a lot. But it's this idea that through faith in Jesus, we are given his righteousness and declared righteous before God. Let's get coffee and talk more about that. And then it says this, how? How does that work? Jesus, verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a big, big word in there. It's this word called propitiation. And it's what Paul's talking about. Um, So Jesus is this designated hitter. And what does propitiation mean? Propitiation means, uh, a propitiation is something that satisfies wrath, that absorbs wrath on the sake of something, for the sake of something else. Um, and this idea in the Bible is that God's wrath, his fire and brimstone that I deserve gets poured out on Jesus instead of me. That God put him forward as a propitiation for us. Um, I have a, a good friend. He used to be the campus minister at Clemson University with RUF. And uh, years ago, he was speaking at a camp, and I had uh, some students there. And I've seen him use this illustration a few times. Um, he probably should have been fired for it. Um, so that's why I'm not going to do it here, but I'll describe it to you. He would take a volleyball, um, and he would say, okay, he'd get two volunteers, and he'd talk to them ahead of time. And one person would stand over there, and then um, he would say, I'm going to throw this volleyball as hard as I can at your back. Like, turn around. And then he would get another volunteer to stand between him and the person he's throwing at. And he'd hold the ball and he'd say, I want you to imagine that this volleyball is Jupiter, but on fire. And then he would rear back. He's a pretty athletic dude. I think he must have played baseball when he was younger. And he would wind up and sling that ball hard. He would explain it to the person ahead of time, like, I'm going to hit you hard. I remember one year, it was like, the dude had, like, Mikasa written backwards on his back from the ball, like, staying him. But it was this picture of somebody else absorbing the wrath, of standing between you and him. And that is what, what Paul is saying Jesus has done for you and me, that somehow or another, on the cross, all of the wrath that anyone deserves who believes in Jesus, who stands behind him, has been pushed together like concentrated orange juice and it's dumped out on his head. Why? He goes on, Paul writes this in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come, that we will be saved from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is an amazing thing. He's saying, this is how God shows his love for you, that I would do this for me. Lot is spared for the sake of Abraham, and ultimately Abraham is spared for the sake of Jesus. And God remembered Abraham and pulled Lot out. And God remembers Jesus and pulls you and me out. Here's the deal. I'll finish with this. Look, 
Evil is real. Uh, I would bet $1,000 that you actually in your heart of hearts believe that evil is real. I think that the, the problem of evil is a much bigger problem for atheists than it is for Christians and other religious believers. It's hard, and you've got to make sense of what God's going to do about it. Um, this whole idea of judgment and punishment and hell and wrath, it's weird and it's offensive and we don't like it and it makes us uncomfortable, but we've got to make sense of how it works. But the Bible is saying that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God um, by the death of his son. And so here's the deal. In Jesus, in the Christian God, and this is utterly unique to Christianity. There's nothing else like this in the world. We have a God who not only punishes evil, who not only pours out wrath, but we have a God who receives that same wrath for us. So if I'm upset about the judgment of God, I've got to look Jesus in the eye and go, oh, yeah, I guess you kind of know what that was like. You've suffered it in our place. This idea that Jesus dying on the cross, it's not just like the physical torture and whatnot that he went through. It's this notion of propitiation, that that hell on earth happened to him, that he experienced it for us. He took it on himself to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And that is because... He loves you. And Jesus did that because he loves you. So repent and believe. And I know you still got questions, so let's get coffee sometime and talk about it. But for now, let me pray. Lord God, uh, what a heavy text. I I hope I did a little bit of justice to it. Um, Be with us. Uh, Help us to understand. Help us to know you uh, for who you are and not just who we want you to be. And uh, we pray this in your name.